This episode of Policing Matters is brought to you by Lexapol, the experts in policy, training, wellness support, and grants assistance for first responders and government leaders. To learn more, visit Lexapol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Hey, we all know policing is a tough job. There can be experiences and incidents that can drive anyone to the edge. The profession gets better and better with training and education to help us respond appropriately to calls for service, to handle any type of situation. But do we do a good job at addressing an officer's mental health wellness? Are we all trained and equipped with mental health fitness? Do we practice wellness to prevent mental health fatigue or even crisis? Well, today's show deals with mental health and well-being of law enforcement officers and their families. Our guest today is Marie Ridgway. Marie Ridgway is a master's level therapist with a private practice in the Minneapolis-St. Paul metro area of Minnesota. Marie and her team of five therapists work with over 50 public safety agencies and have served thousands of law enforcement officers since 2017. She has partnered with Cortico to provide wellness content, and she is a clinical consultant for multiple crisis negotiation teams. Welcome to Policing Matters, Marie Ridgway. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. I really appreciate it. It's such an honor to be able to talk about what we're doing here. Yeah. And, you know, I've seen your YouTubes and they're great. I love, uh, you know, the way you interact with law enforcement officers and the setting that you provide. Thanks for what you do. How does your practice work? Are you a referral? Are you working with specific agencies? Are you in a behavioral science group? How's it work? Yep. So we were pretty unique in that we almost all of our work, not all, we do take some um, clients outside of our contracted agencies, but we do not bill insurance. It's one of the ways that we try to kind of break down barriers to care is we provide employer paid services. So we are able to still keep the work confidential. We can bill with just a code. Our employers allow that. Um, they don't know who we're billing for, but we're able to provide therapy services at no cost to the client. The agencies, the law enforcement agencies are picking up that tab, budgeting for it, kind of building it into their wellness programming. Um, and then in that case, we also then aren't having to diagnose. So if we're not billing an insurance company, we don't have to prove that our medical care is medically necessary. So um, that's beneficial in a few ways because Often by the time we work with somebody, law enforcement are, you know, really mentally strong, but stress takes a toll. And so often by the time we work with them and, um, you know, attend to those stress or trauma symptoms, a lot of times they wouldn't meet a diagnosis anymore. So um, it's really a, a neat way to be able to providing care, to provide care to, to this unique group. So our clients are, we are getting to be on site in our agencies. We're introducing ourselves. We're becoming a familiar resource. They understand that we work only with first responders and specifically law enforcement. And so they have, you know, 
care that's occupationally competent. They're never going to have to come explain to us what they do or why they do it um, or why they operate the way that they do. Got it. Yeah, I want to follow up um, in, in a couple of minutes about confidentiality, because, of course, you know how what a big issue it is, especially in the law enforcement community. How much of your practice involves prevention? So, you know, we go to a trainer at a gym and we want to get stronger and reinforce, you know, good habits and we want to stay well and avoid injuries. What do you do for officers that uh, keeps them standing upright, gets them to to work every day, keeps them steady at home? What's the what's the the standard, I guess, regimen? Yeah, well, it's a great question. It's uh, you, you know how the last um, few years, especially 2020 and 2021 were uh, for law enforcement, especially challenging time. Um, and prior to that, there has been a bit of this type of work happening, but not nearly enough of it. And really not anything to kind of this depth or scale before um, in Minnesota, at least. And so um, we really, the majority of what we do is that sort of um, prevention and also helping folks recognize what's happening for them. Let's help them see these subclinical symptoms of, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. Let's recognize those as what they are and not, you know, kind of try to brush them off anymore as, oh, we're all that way. That's how we all get. It's been that way forever. Um, we don't need to look at it anymore. We can recognize signs earlier on, and we really do try to get ahead of um, of the bigger problems, which we can do. So we do that by really, like I said, trying to become a familiar, trusted resource. The earlier somebody is willing to reach out, the, the better and the faster we can help them get back to feeling and functioning the way they want to. Um, and so most of our agencies, the vast majority of them, now require an annual check-in with us. Those check-ins are not a therapy appointment. It's not an evaluation. We don't ever do fitness for duty type stuff. We don't ever want to cross those lines and confuse anybody. Um, and so those annual check-ins though are really valuable in just, first of all, building familiarity, just having come to our office, stepped in the door, had a good experience, see that it's nothing to be worried about, um, ask any questions and hear from us about here are some things to be aware of. How are you doing in these areas? If you're interested in chatting about that, that's really uh, one of the, the most important prevention pieces we're doing because we certainly have many officers say, you know, I really needed this. I didn't realize I did, or I did realize that I did, but I never would have reached out if it hadn't been, you know, required of all of us. And because everybody's coming in at an agency, nobody has to feel odd about it. It doesn't have to um, have any stigma attached to it because it's just you just go and check the box. And from there, if somebody chooses to access more care, they can. I always um, request that or require now that agencies, if they're going to do annual check-ins with us, they also need to provide some follow-up sessions for those who opt in and choose to use those. So that's um, some of the main things that we do regarding prevention. We're also always sending out information and, um, you know, here are ways to stay healthy, reminders where, um, you know, after incidents, many agencies are asking, hey, can you reach out to these folks who were involved in this tough 
call um, and we'll just ask, how are you doing? You know, come on in if you need it. Can we chat? What might you need? Um, thank you for going and doing that job today. That was especially difficult. Um, and also, um, prevention is part of what we do in our training too. We, I know we'll talk about it a little more later, but um, you know, we also try to involve families, specifically significant others and spouses, so that they have the information that they need as well. Because usually our loved ones notice stress in us before we necessarily do, even if we think we're, we're hiding it. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I, I love uh, the way you just described your program. And it's different in one that I'm familiar with, with my home department, San Francisco PD, where I served. And you know, it's quite different. Uh, I love the idea that you, everybody's required to go as opposed to only those who seek it, right? Or yeah. uh, one of our policies, which I hated, was that we couldn't reach out to somebody who was uh, obviously in signs of distress, that it, it had to be a formal process for a, a supervisor to write, essentially write someone up, almost like a complaint. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, it's it's just like such a great idea to have everybody come in and nobody's privy to what goes on in, in that meeting. But uh, mm -hmm. you may have someone like you just described who says, wow, I didn't know I needed it, but it was great to have the opportunity to you know, talk about it. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, right. And you're, you're speaking to this general culture, sort of um, orienting itself now more towards wellness. Let's start from, you know, your field training period, we're, we're coming in and we're um, speaking to you and your spouse about here's what to expect, like, let's get um, ahead of the problem by giving you the information you need right off the bat during one of the most stressful times that you may have experienced so far in your in your life potentially as you're starting out the career and then from there just normalize the use of our services um, have us around and we just try to build it into be it uh, a normal part of what you know any human that gets put through as much trauma exposure as a as a police officer does would need. Sure. Yeah, no, that's great. And then, you know, to add credibility, you use active duty officers in your practice. How, how do you integrate them? Yeah, so we, those of us um, therapists in my practice, we are not law enforcement. Um, one of my therapists is a Marine. Um, you know, there are family members, loved ones in law enforcement, but we ourselves aren't. And so it's definitely important to have that angle, especially when we're teaching other therapists. So when I train other therapists, um, just on the training side, we have uh, active duty law enforcement assisting us so that they bring that perspective, like, here's how it is now, here's how it is for us in our position, ask them questions, get familiar with, um, with that side of it. So that's certainly um, an essential piece of the training that we do. We also, um, train alongside law enforcement when we train CIT courses and, and all of that. So that's really the main way that we utilize them. Also, they are um, often brought in when I train peer support teams, um, you know, in as far as assisting and teaching how to do a diffusing or um, talking about an agency's experience with developing their own team or their own wellness programming. I just, you know, I really enjoy getting to be a platform for all these 
agencies to get to learn from each other so that nobody has to reinvent the wheel and we're just always kind of exponentially growing because we're leaning on each other's efforts. Yeah, well, that makes sense. And I'm glad that you you brought up the crisis negotiation teams and the peer support groups. And so you have the officers there who, who know the you know inside baseball part of law enforcement. Uh, when you do your uh, debriefings uh, post-incidents, are you called into post-incident briefings or debriefings? Yeah, many of our agencies utilize us as therapists to run those. Certainly when it's an event where there is you know, possible charges happening, like after an officer-involved shooting, when the attorneys for the officers involved allow a, a debriefing, we will run those. Um, and in fact, sometimes we can even just run those in a um, completely privileged, confidential way as far as like group therapy. So we always want there to be an option for folks to both individually and in a group get the support that they need after these incidents. Um, because it is, there are so few people that you can talk to after these incidents or that you feel comfortable talking to. So we're trying to broaden how many outlets there are for support. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and then um, what level of management? I mean, are you only using with officers involved in these incidents or um, are supervisory officers or commanding officers allowed in those briefings? So for debriefs, the only we so the first thing is to make sure to keep any kind of tactical debrief separate, yeah. whether it's CNT or it's a peer support type debrief that should happen separately. So what we're focusing on is really only those who are directly involved. So if um, somebody who was maybe just directing traffic or heard it on the radio wants to be supportive, wants to be there, that's understandable, but it also can take away from the dynamic for those who were directly involved. They may only want to open up as much as they would to each other who were there with all of their senses involved. And so we really keep it to kind of that close-knit direct group. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and then, you know, I want to get into the the confidentiality and the stigma part of, uh, you know, seeing a therapist and talking about, um, you know, your mental health. But I want to get to that in a minute. I'd first like to take a moment and thank our sponsor. Lexapol empowers first responders and public servants to best meet the needs of their residents safely and responsibly, serving more than 2 million public safety and government professionals in over 8,000 agencies and municipalities. Lexapol offers a range of solutions that includes policies, training, behavioral health resources, news and analysis, and grant assistance services for law enforcement, fire and rescue, EMS, local government, and other agencies dedicated to public safety. To learn more, visit Lexipol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. And we're back speaking with Marie Ridgway, law enforcement therapist and author. Again, about confidentiality, it's a fine line, especially in your work. Often officers may be reluctant to reach out for help for fear of the stigma, how do you allay those fears? Yeah, so this is something that we um, like to address really head on. I 
paid a lot of attention early on to what questions were being asked. What did the union want to know? What did the, you know, chief law enforcement officer want to know? What did everybody involved uh, worry about or, or, or were they curious about? And so we just right up front lay it all out. Here's what you can expect um, when you come in for, you know, first of all, when you come in for a check-in, we're not taking notes. We're not going to record anything that was discussed during that check-in. If you do choose to come back and see us for therapy, ethically, we have to take some notes. So we take very brief notes. Um, and anybody who wants to see their own notes can do so. Those are there just to remind us of, you know, make sure we're making progress and make sure we pick up kind of where we left off the next time we see you. So um, that that's one way that we do it. We also, even though employers are paying for these sessions, they have, and they've agreed to in our contracts and they have no legal right to see anything or to know anything. So um, that's can sometimes be a concern. It isn't really anymore because we've been doing this for a few years now and really just word gets around that like no this works it's done well and nothing bad you know has happened or will happen um because we take this really seriously we know that entire programs you know whether it's a peer support program or or what we do it relies on confidentiality so statute requires that a therapist keep everything confidential the only exceptions would be like a mandated reporter has to report abuse or neglect to a child or a vulnerable adult. And then any you know, immediate harm uh, to self or others would be the other thing. So the, the nice thing is that when you know, it, it isn't nice that many law enforcement officers have suicidal ideation, but this is often the big question is, can I talk to you about that? Can, do they feel comfortable talking to us about those thoughts and feelings? We need them to be because we can only help somebody to the extent that they can be honest with us in our conversations with them. So we are fluent in suicidality. We know it inside and out. We know how to not overreact. We know how to not underreact. And we know that helping our clients feel like they can have confidential conversations about literally anything they're feeling or thinking is the best thing we can do for them to provide the best care. So um, we, you know, sadly are often having those conversations um, and can do so because of that level of trust. They know we're not going to overreact. We know how common those thoughts are. Those thoughts come in because the brain is trying to problem solve being in a really bad spot. A lot of psychological distress leads to thoughts of suicide. So, you know, those thoughts are usually very distressing to folks. And so we wanna be able to talk about it and then do something about it. What is that top layer of you know, stress that has stacked up that we can right away start to address and remove so that those thoughts um, go away? And then how can we keep proceeding towards you know, the, the level of wellness that that person wants? So those are some of kind of the main things. Um, we're very clear that um, we don't uh, respond if there were ever to be a subpoena from an attorney. We don't have to respond to that. We just say we don't admit or deny knowing anything about who you're inquiring about. A subpoena would have to come from a court. And I checked with um, the BCA here in Minnesota, and they told me that that's never happened in Minnesota, even when attorneys have tried to get mental health notes 
um, they've not been successful. The court has always said, no, absolutely not. That's privileged. We're not bringing that into play here. So between these things, I hope that it, you know, and it does really seem to um, provide a lot of um, reassurance to folks. So we, um, we're really happy that it seems to be working. Within our office, we have, um, we, you know, kind of puzzle piece folks in so that they're not coming in you know, at maybe right before or after a colleague is, if it's a therapy session, we have two exits. So a person could choose not to leave our office through, through the waiting room, but to go through kind of the back staff entrance area for more privacy. Um, we, you know, we think about all these kinds of things because we know just how critical this is. So the fact though, that almost everybody we work with has to do um, annual check-in really helps sort of, um, just hide anybody who is coming in for therapy because anyone would just assume, oh, they're just here because they had to come in for their check-in. And so they wouldn't think anything of it. And it really has just helped normalize this um, in a big way here in Minnesota. Yeah. I mean, that's those are all great, um, you know, sort of firewalls uh, to ensure the confidentiality. Um, I know one of the things you talked about was uh, self-harm or self-others that were, you know, you had to report. And, you know, I've been a, an officer after post-shooting, seeing a therapist, I've been a peer support officer, and I've been a, on command staff where we deal with our behavioral science unit. And sometimes uh, the notification of self-harm comes way too late in the process. I mean, almost to the point of, you know, the, you know, the activity. And so, that's got to be, um, you know, a difficult uh, issue to sort of handle. Like, when do you make that notification? Like, hey, we really need to do something now. And and rather than wait for that critical moment, like, do you, do you consult with a team to say, hey, we need to do something? We need an intervention now? Yeah, it's a great question. We the main thing I say is we really encourage and our agencies do reach out to us if they ever have concerns. Somebody who chooses to kill themselves, there were signs leading up to that. And so we wanna make sure to have the full picture for someone who's really struggling. Oftentimes people are talking to us about it first. The great thing if somebody is feeling comfortable enough to open up to us about it and we know, you know the indicators of when to ask about it, um, the great thing there is if they're win willing to talk about it, they're willing to safety plan with us and then they can be choosing, how do I want to keep myself safe? How much do I need to do to account for the potential of an impulsive decision being made? Um, and who do I want to bring into my safety plan to be sure that I can get through this phase that's temporary that I've got enough support to get me through. So, you know, we're trying to talk about it bring it up early on, even for, you know, at trainings for officers who never had those kinds of thoughts cross their mind. We still want to explain, here's how it happens. Here's how you can get there. Here's the way your mind will work. And here's what to do about it. This is what it means. But whenever we can, let's get ahead of it. So more so when somebody is um, really in a critical spot, they uh, are potentially telling someone at work, that they're not okay, I'm going to turn over my gun, you know, they're kind of noticing these warning signs and 
essentially kind of asking for help about it and then looping us in and we'll shift everything around to get a person in that day if they're in a really bad spot uh, and then go from there. So that's worked really well. It's really, you know, it's really about having people at agencies that folks feel like they can go to and they'll get what they need and that it won't be treated like a performance issue. It'll be treated like a human issue, you know, a, a brain health issue and a need for support. And then we, I think we know we're, we're doing the best that we possibly can. Yeah, that's right. So um, we're, we're, I respect for your time and we are running out of time, but I've got a few uh, pretty important questions to ask. And, you know, I've talked with Dr. David Black. We're doing a mini series on um, health and wellness, mental health and wellness. Uh, Dr. Black of Cortico talks about fitness, alcohol, caffeine drinks, the importance of sleep and things like that. What are you seeing What's recurring? What's the often complaint? Uh, is it viewing repetitive uh, trauma? What are officers um, coming in to, to talk to you at length most about these days without, you know, specifics, of course? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it is, you know, generally, broadly, it's stress symptoms. And whether that rises to kind of the level of trauma or it's a um, stress from this kind of that stacking effect of trauma exposure, sometimes a feeling of a lack of support is also present. Sometimes what happens, you know, within a police department is just as stressful as the trauma exposure on the streets. It, it really varies, um, but really commonly as far as symptoms, what, what shows up is often irritability, sleep disturbances, sometimes physical or chronic pain of any kind, that they can't, you know, explain by any other medical condition. And their doctor has kind of said, this has to be stressed. Nothing else is going on with your mm -hmm. physical body um, or it's showing up as relationship strain. So the way that they're operating at work works well. It helps keep them safe. It helps them be a great cop, but bringing it home has consequences. Bringing that work mode home has consequences on the family um, and has sometimes built some dynamics that are, creating some disconnection. So we also help from that angle too, as far as uh, couples therapy. Yeah, I'm glad you bring up uh, family. It's, I, I wanna wrap up with, you know, what's uh, what's your good advice for officers and their families out there listening? Um, spouses, uh, I know are really creating a great network of support now. You see them on social media. There are a lot of podcasts and YouTubes about, uh, therapists who are wives of law enforcement officers or partners with them. Uh, what should officers be doing to ward off any signs of depression, trouble sleeping or other indicators? Um, you know, what can they do with their families to sort of ID and, and get ahead of? Yeah, it's a great question. It's one of my favorite questions. I love the prevention side of all of this. And what I have kind of boiled it down to from working with just as many officers as we have over the years is those who do the best under the most stressful of circumstances that an officer runs into have prior been essentially already training their brain through healthy habits so that when those stressful things hit, they already know what to be doing to bounce back as fast as they can. So this includes things like prioritizing sleep, keeping caffeine away from sleep for at least six hours, 
your ability to rest, to get moments of rest for your brain, um, even throughout a shift um, and be able to kind of switch from the intensity of the work and then down regulate your nervous system a bit and you know take some deep breaths, relax a bit, um, let go of a bit of tension so that you have less to come down from at the end of the day so you can tune into your family better. That's such a incredible challenge. I love working with sort of this like edge of human potential type stuff. And that's what it is in law enforcement. You're going to, you know, hopefully have this 30 year marathon length career, but within it, you're going to have to sprint day after day after day. So the only way you can sprint a marathon is to take breaks and rest. And so you have to get really good at recovery. And like Gil Martin says, the recovery is not turn on a game and crack a beer and check out from everybody who cares about you. It's exercise, nutrition, stay hydrated, tune into your family, invest in those loved ones who you want to build your connection with and look forward to being with after the career is over. And what is your mindset? What's your attitude towards all this? Have you had to kind of re, you know, um, revisit your mindset given the way the, you know, the, um, the support has felt lacking over these last few years. Are you now having to kind of re-identify with the profession from a different angle potentially, even as hopefully now support is starting to, to fill back in? And then living a balanced life. You've got to have things you enjoy doing that you love doing that are fun for you, that are playful, um, that you look forward to, that you spend in your time off. And, and then the last one would be access to professional care. So you, um, you know, you need to know ahead of time, not in crisis. I mean, in crisis, yes, please do still find who those people are, but hopefully before it's you're in crisis, it's when you're in crisis, who are you going to reach out to? Who do you trust and who can you lean on um, when things get stressful as you know that they will in law enforcement. So those kind of, we break them up into six factors. Families need to know about them and the importance of them. Families need to understand why the, the brain works the way it does because of stress, because of the way cops are trained to be able to move towards threat and danger. Um, and then everybody needs to know how this works, why it works this way, and then what to best do to, to get ahead of it. Then if you've got those practices in place and you have those healthy habits, when, you know, things get even more difficult than the everyday, which is already its own level of strain, you can kick into gear, have a plan and know like, okay, this is what we need to do during this recovery time now here after this incident. Um, here's what to watch for. So those are probably the main things. Um, kids are often a part of that too, whether they are having their own effects after a critical incident um, or, you know, kids of law enforcement officers just sometimes need support like any kid does. So um, a few of us therapists work with kids as well. Yeah, that's great. That's gotta be rewarding work. Hey, it thank is. you so much for taking time. Uh, Marie Ridgway, law enforcement therapist and author in the Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota area. How can listeners find you, your YouTubes, your articles? Um, how can they see what you're writing about these days? You're welcome to find us online. Our website is just 
marieridgeway.com and you can click on any of our tabs, but resources has some of the videos I've created. I have a training tab, some of them are online. And then there's a contact page there too. You're welcome to reach out. I love being able to help and spread, you know, everything I've been learning from all of the um, wonderful people we get to work with. Um, and thank you, it's an honor to, to be able to talk. I, and I always hope that um, something I say helps somebody. So I appreciate this opportunity. Yeah, I'm sure it will. I'm sure, um, you know, it'll trigger some people to, to reach out. Hey, I appreciate everything you're doing for the law enforcement community and, and the word that you're putting out there. We will put your article links below in show notes for our listeners to, to click on and, and read more about you. Thanks again. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Hey, and to our listeners, I hope you enjoyed the show. I hope you check out Marie Ridgway and her website and her articles and, uh, you know, take it to heart. Um, do some preventative maintenance. Do a team huddle at home with your family and uh, stay well. Hey, thanks again for listening. Uh, be safe out there and hope to talk to you again real soon. Take good care. <laughs>